0: Hello, and welcome to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I am Garrett Ashley Mullet, your intrepid host, and today we're going to talk about oil and gas. Now, since 2012, I've worked in the oil and gas industry, and I'm happy about that. I'm good with it. I don't feel a guilty conscience. I don't feel like I'm destroying the planet. I don't feel that I'm contributing to the deforestation of anywhere. I don't feel like I'm extinguishing uh, endangered species. I don't feel like I'm giving anyone cancer. Uh, I don't have any um, misgivings or, or guilty feelings or any of that when it comes to working on oil and gas since 2012. I do feel a lot of misgivings about the way that this industry is portrayed in a lot of political debates and in a lot of conversations that are had in society. And I'll give you an example of a piece of content that I just looked at this morning, for instance. And this was a video that I watched on the Wall Street Journal, the title of which was Fracking the Unexpected Issue That Could Determine the 2020 Election. And I watched this video over my cup of coffee and I'm seeing the debate back and forth between those who say we need not just fracking but oil and gas exploration, uh, development, production, and we need to refine and use oil and gas products to generate electricity, to create products. We need to use oil and gas for manufacturing. We need to use oil and gas to stimulate the economy. And that was the one side of the debate. And the other side of the debate was some young guy who is in university. And uh, he's studying to be a software engineer. He's studying at Carnegie Mellon there in uh, Pennsylvania. And he is trying to figure out how to vote. And so he's going to vote Biden. He's going to vote for the, the ticket that is telling him that the world is at stake and that his vote, therefore, is saving the world. Now, that's a big lofty uh, claim, but does it hold up under scrutiny? Does it hold up under questioning? The simple fact is that it doesn't. But for a lot of people who want that feeling, they want that meaning in their lives, it's attractive. And it works, it's engaging. We live in a postmodern Western civilization, which is full of loathing and self-doubt and racked with questions of our pitiful, meaningless existence. We are in an existential quandary as of 50, 60, 70 years ago. And it really went back to World War I and World War II And before that, it went back to uh, the Enlightenment. And after the Enlightenment, it went back to the theory of evolution by natural selection, popularized by Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species. And this idea of naturalism, this idea that quite possibly we can explain all that is without God. Now, initially, this was not an assault on the belief in God. It wasn't an assault necessarily on uh, a a general kind of theism, but it was at its roots a question of how do we know what is true? You you, you get the Protestant Reformation coming out of hundreds of years of domination in Western Europe by the Roman Catholic Church, and men like Martin Luther and... uh, John Calvin and John Knox and others that uh, we think of when we think of the Protestant Reformation, they began asking questions and making bold assertions that we had been misled as products of Western civilization. We had been taught falsehoods by the Roman Catholic tradition and that we needed to get back to the scriptures, we needed to get back to the Bible. The Protestant Reformation really was the first back to the Bible movement. And from that came a lot of questions of not just what does the Bible say, but well, if we're gonna start questioning you know, what the Catholic Church is teaching us versus what the Bible says, why not even question well, why do we believe that the Bible's true? And what are we using? What is our implement for deciphering here? And what a number of men came up with, men like Thomas Paine, for instance, was that our reason, our intellectual faculties had to be the tool by which we decided truth claims and what was valid and what needed to be left on the ash heap. And in that way, the dividing line became one between those who looked to the past, they looked to our origins they looked to god ultimately to tell us what is true and what is not true and those on the other hand who looked to their own intellectual faculties to tell them what is true and what is right now the latter of these two options contrived together in various uh you know quantities and various shares uh, for each man that contributed to this idea that we can have a secular society, we can have a secular life, and that that life and society is better than one which arises out of religious conviction, which were, which arises out of uh, belief in God and an appeal to divine revelation vis-a-vis the Bible. And with this naturalistic view of ourselves and one another and society and life and reality came a number of implications for the way that we perceive our, our purpose, the way that we perceive our, um, you know, position relative our creation, you know, in in the biblical worldview, you have uh, in Genesis God creating Adam and Eve and saying, for one thing, on the end of the sixth day, he says it was very good, right? He looks at his creation on day one, two, three, four, five, and he surmises this is good, right? Good so far. And on the end of the sixth day, after he has made Adam and Eve, after he has created man in his image, unlike all of the other animals in which The breath of life resided. God says it's very good. And he gives this command to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. That is a monumental starting point. Be fruitful and multiply. That means have children. Have a family. It is not good that man should be alone. That's the first time God says that something is not good. He says good, 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 good when he makes the heavens and the earth, when he makes the sun, moon, and stars, when he creates light and darkness, when he separates the waters from the land, when he creates the plants, when he creates all the different kinds of biological life. He says it's good, 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 good. The first thing that's not good is that man should be alone. So he makes a helper suitable for him. Well, that just set the stage for us to understand marriage. To understand the relationship between men and women. Now, a lot of people in every uh, part of the world throughout all of human history, in every culture, from every religion, have scratched their heads at the dynamic between men and women because, newsflash, men and women are different. So, ergo, men have a hard time understanding women, women have a hard time understanding men, but our Confusion, or oftentimes frustration, with uh, the fairer sex, if you're men, or with uh, you know, with men, if you're women, arises because of our differences. We have a hard time relating to one another because of our differences. And yet, very, very early on, like the first week of creation, of of all of these things that we think of and we, we take for granted as a given, coming into being, God speaking them into existence, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Uh, in that first week of creation, God says, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helpmeet suitable for him. Then, after he's created the woman and introduced Adam to his bride, Eve, God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Now that's a mandate. Have a family, have children, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. That means spread out. I want you everywhere. I want you all over the place. I want you to fill it up and subdue it. What does that word mean? Subdue, master it, exercise dominion, rule, reign, cultivate, Originally, God put Adam in the garden to keep it, to tend it. He was going to be, if you will, a gardener, the original gardener. That was Adam's job description. He's a gardener. And so this idea that man was put on earth for this purpose, to fill the earth and subdue it in God's image, in other words, to fill the earth with God's image bearers, that is a major, major distinctive in the Christian worldview. And so it's unsurprising from that starting position that the cultures and civilizations and nations and people who have believed this have approached their human activity, their construction of government, of culture, of Uh, art, of religious practices, of traditions, of family, of economics, of building businesses, of exploring, of building cities, of spreading out. We have this notion that this is good. Not only is this good, this is what we were put here to do. We were created for this purpose. And it's not a defect. It's not a bug. This is a feature On the other hand, you have this idea, this worldview, which was popularized by men like Thomas Paine, which was popularized by men like Charles Darwin, which was popularized by men like uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, which was popularized by men like Sigmund Freud, which was popularized by men like Karl Marx, that at a certain point... The activity of human beings really does come down to who has the power, who has might to make right. So, for instance, in Charles Darwin's view, you have this idea that evolution explains all the biological diversity on Earth. The fit members of a species will go on to propagate that species. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're stronger. The strong don't always necessarily uh, survive. Maybe the strong are a little bit uh, too bold, and so they get themselves into situations which shorten rather than prolong their lives. And discretion is the better part of valor. You know, maybe the more discreet members of the species who aren't quite as strong but play it a little more shrewd, they end up having more children. They attract a mate, they retain the mate, they mate, and they have children. They make babies. And so then they go on to pass their genes to the next generation, and so on and so on and so on ad infinitum. And then what you get at the end of that is a species which is suited to survive in the environment it's in. But you also have this idea <clears throat> from Thomas Paine that ideas work sort of like that. And the way that ideas evolve is that from generation to generation, we, if you will, have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to uh, obligate ourselves to the traditions of our forebears. We don't have to look to the past and see what their values were and then adopt those values and embrace those values. If they believed in Jesus, that doesn't necessarily mean we have to believe in Jesus. In fact, we have a responsibility, argue, you know, Payne would argue to test all these things, to reason them out. And if they don't make sense to us or we don't like them, and if we think something else makes more sense, and is more reasonable, and we like it better, then every generation we get to start afresh, if we want to. So in that sense, man's reason then becomes the ultimate arbiter, that becomes the rubric. And uh, good luck sifting that one because everybody has a different idea of what constitutes reasonableness and rationality. So then at the end of the day, if you can't agree on some kind of a tiebreaker for instance, that there is an idea of objective truth, and that it isn't all just in our heads, Uh, it really is going to come down to not just reason in the sense of philosophical musings and clever arguments, it's going to come down to reason in the sense of, I'm going to reason out the way to conquer you, and to win, and to beat you, and to defeat you, and the ends justify the means, which is why Thomas Paine supported the French Revolution, and Edmund Burke did not. But if you also look at Sigmund Freud, you have Sigmund Freud talking about repressed emotions and how these cause dysfunction and that one of the ways we're going to deal with the dysfunction that people have on an individual personal level, that they have within their families, that they have within their work life, that they have within their society, their community, one of the ways that we're going to deal with that is we're going to have those people with repressed emotions and dysfunctional feelings Go to somebody who is rational, somebody who is reasonable, somebody who can help them to sift those things, and somebody who's going to be confident in telling them, well, no, this is your problem. Let me tell you what your problem is, and then you fix it. Or just keep coming back over and over and over again, laying on this couch while I jot notes and go, hmm, interesting. Tell me about your relationship with your mother. Uh, So there's a cert of survival of the fittest, to Sigmund Freud's mentality and there's a sense in which, again, man is the measure of all things, I think therefore I am, Uh, reason is, uh, you know, even if it's not necessarily our own reason, if we don't trust our own reason, if we've lost the confidence and the ability to be reasonable, uh, we're going to go to somebody else that we recognize as being highly rational and uh, trustworthy and they're going to arbitrate these things. When we come to Friedrich Nietzsche, we have this big bold statement for which Nietzsche is known best, which is that God is dead. Now what does Nietzsche mean by God is dead? What he means is that God is irrelevant. God ceases to be a consequential factor in our thinking, in the way that we live our lives, and so what of it? Uh, If you delve a little deeper into Nietzsche's ideas, you find out that he viewed Christianity as an offshoot of Judaism and that he viewed Judaism as a slave's religion and that all of the morality within uh, the Old Testament law was it was an offshoot of trying to cope with. It was a coping mechanism. It was a, 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 an attempt at surviving 400 years of hard bondage in Egypt when the children of Israel were slaves to the Egyptians after Joseph and before Moses. And Nietzsche sees the rise of Christianity in Germany specifically as having had a deleterious effect on the manly virtues of the Germanic people. He says that the German people were manly and warlike and that they had this um, high esteem for strength and for assertion and for, uh, you know, being more aggressive. And that with the rise of Christianity, that uh, inclination towards these manly virtues had to make way. It had to subside. It had to retreat. And it was replaced with a kind of weakness, a moral weakness, that we are not reaching our full potential. We are not being supermen Übermensch. Uh, if we embrace this teaching of Jesus, if we embrace the law of Moses, if we embrace the Bible, we're not reaching our potential. If we want to have our best life now, we have to maybe go back, go a little paleo and uh, and, and be more like uh, the pagan Germans, the Germanic tribes that fought with the Romans and, uh, and, and gave them a run for their money for centuries. And if you fast forward again from Darwin and Paine and Freud and Nietzsche to the modern world, to modern America, for instance, we find that side by side we have those who love God and they believe that what God's word says is true and binding and important and that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have the intellectual descendants of these secularists who believed that they were the measure of all things. God is not the one who will measure all things. Man is the measure of all things. Now, one of the consequences of this latter worldview has been that unconstrained rationality, unconstrained... uh, ego and self-importance finds its expression in often amoral and immoral and evil and polluted ways. So then you have somebody who is pursuing perhaps a noble end on its face, for instance, doing business in a way which is highly unethical, in a way which is highly unscrupulous and dishonest and fraudulent. And so, all they want is money, and therefore, they're willing to lie, steal, cheat, murder, defraud, slander, whatever it takes in order to get, make, uh, expand, protect, consolidate their wealth. On the other hand, you also have people who are protective and they want to uh, fight against evil, and yet what they consider to be good and evil skews who they think they need to be fighting and so also it skews who they think they need to ally themselves with and so they they look at the world in this skewed way because according to their reason according to their rationality these are the good guys these are the bad guys but ultimately if their their standard for evaluating good and evil, is off, then their conclusions about who the heroes and villains are will also be off. Similarly, as they're fighting against people who may or may not be corrupt alongside people who may or may not be virtuous, they're willing to employ tactics which may or may not be virtuous, which may or may not be moral, which may or may not be godly, which may or may not be effectual. And this is not so much to say that I'm talking about real-time current events and people, places, and things, although that is the truth also. But in terms of the rearview mirror, the things which have gone before, the precedents, you now have people in our day who are able to point backwards and say, ah, you know what? This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. That was wrong. This was bad. That was corrupt. This was evil. And therefore, we have to tear the whole system down. And so often, the people who subscribed to the secular godless worldview and acted accordingly and acted in ways which were not always wise which were not always moral which were not always virtuous which were not always productive and beneficial they are somehow conflated with the persons who believed that no god said this and that's how we should act and that's what we should do and that's what we're going to be about and so then you have christianity being blamed for the actions of unchristian people as soon as someone says, well, wait a second, our legal system, our culture, our values in America were heavily, heavily influenced by Christianity. Then you have a Howard Zinn come trotting along with his People's History of the United States and saying that, no, you know what? That was oppressive. That was oppressive. That was oppressive. That was bad. This was no good. That was corrupt. Therefore, we need socialism. Therefore, we need Marxism. Therefore, we need to tear the whole system down and start afresh. Because America is this oppressive system. It is this disingenuous, corrupt system. That is uh, that is confused thinking, and uh, and it's circular, and uh, it doesn't it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. Really, if you if you dig down deep and you, you look at it. Now, it's difficult, though, to dig down deep and to look at it uh, at its face, to look at it on its merits, to put it under scrutiny, because you have men like Howard Zinn, who then inspired other men and women, to teach faux history, enter, stage right, the 1619 Project. And now we will have the New York Times saying, that America was not really founded in 1776. It was really founded when the first African slaves came over on a ship in 1619. And that is what the whole system was really about. It was really about keeping the black man down. It was really about disenfranchising women. It was really about stealing land from Native Americans. It was really about persecuting anybody that wasn't a wasp. And so then you get all of these revisionist histories which purport to tell the actual history, all the while focusing far more on what supports their narrative than they focus on what is factually true, what is honest. And since they don't believe that anybody that wrote glowingly or positively about these things that they view as oppressive and corrupt, they don't believe you can trust any of those people, they go out of their way to try and disprove that those people were telling things which we can trust. They don't trust them. And so then at the end of it, it's almost like, well, who knows what happened actually, right? This person is saying we've been totally corrupt. These people over there are saying that we are the heroes of the story. And I don't know what to believe. Maybe we should just move forward, right? Let's just start fresh and focus on what comes next. And That also creates problems because then we're going to say we're not going to learn from the lessons of history Because we're all of a sudden we're saying we can't learn from the lessons of history. We don't even know what happened in history And since we can't learn from the lessons of history uh, According to George Santayana, we are doomed to repeat it. Those who fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them and so then, regardless of how many times socialism has been tried, regardless of how many times communism has been tried, regardless of how many times leftist ideology has failed and not just failed but it has starved and brutalized millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions, and millions of people across the world, it doesn 't matter right that 's all propaganda supposedly that 's all you know these these wealthy capitalists who just didn 't want a system. Uh, coming up and, and redistributing their wealth more equitably. That's just propaganda by these Christian conservatives who actually are Nazis, by the way, even though Nazis were national socialists. And wait a second, weren't you advocating socialism? Oh, no, no, no. Let's not talk about that. Let's not talk about that. Right, so it's a, it's a mess, right? It's a mess. And so let's come back again to the fracking issue because that's what I'm really leading up to. That's what I'm really talking about in case you've... Gotten lost, and you're wondering what all of this has to do with fracking. What all of this has to do with fracking is you have, on the one hand, in the biblical worldview, this creation mandate. You have this be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it mandate from God, where we are not uh, a bug, we are a feature. We are not a virus, we are not bacteria, we are not a parasite, we are not an infection on. Mother Earth, we are the crowning jewel of God's creation. His six days of creation culminate with the creation of man in his image. Not because we're glorious in and of ourselves, but because he's glorious and it pleases him in his good pleasure to make us in his image for his purposes. God says, fill the earth and subdue it, be fruitful and multiply. And one of the practical consequences and outgrowths of this is that when man finds oil bubbling up, that, that black crude bubbling up from the ground, and then when man finds out that there are a whole host of practical uses for this oily black stuff, we can burn it for fuel, we can turn it into plastics, we can turn it into pharmaceuticals, We can do all sorts of things with it. We can burn it to heat our homes. We can burn it to generate electricity. We can burn it to fuel our vehicles that travel back and forth from point A to point B That get us to work, That get us to the supermarket, that, that help us take our kids to school, that help us go to grandma's on Thanksgiving. When we figure out that we can use this black stuff that comes out of the ground, we do it. And we have no misgivings. We have no guilty feelings. We don't feel bad about it because actually, if anything, we are fulfilling that original creation mandate, right? And we know that deep down inside instinctively. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And That is by golly what we're doing. Enter the alternative view which is that man is the measure of all things. I think, therefore, I am. Which is that we are here through random chance, which it says that you know we sometimes have dysfunctional feelings which need to be controlled by going to somebody else whose rationale can actually be trusted, who then is going to filter our feelings and feed them right back to us and tell us, which of them we can keep and which need to go. You know, you, you you contrast this creation mandate with the idea of Nietzsche, that Christianity is the slave religion outgrowth that is hurting our manly uh, pagan origins and our manly pagan virtues. And which says that really, if we were to go back in time to when a bunch of half-naked tattooed painted up barbarians were screaming over the Rhine at the Roman soldiers on the other shore that would be really ideal from a spiritual standpoint you you go back in time to the caveman and let's not just have a paleo diet let's have a paleo civilization let's have a paleo family let's have a paleo life let's act like cavemen right let's walk around dragging our club behind us and we find some chick that looks good. Let's just bop her over the head and have our way and be on our way, right? Somebody has something that we think would be more useful to the, the needs of the many. Those outweigh the needs of the few. Let's just bop them over the head, too. Take their stuff and redistribute it. And in the case of fracking, when you have this additional idea of environmentalism, which, if you ask me my opinion started out as a prop. It started out as a means to the end of uh, people feeling like they're saving themselves and they're making up for their atoning for their sins, which they, because they don't accept and embrace the Christian worldview, they don't recognize, they refuse to recognize and confess and admit to. This is a way of atoning for those sins. And because they view you know, humanity as being better off without you know, Christian repentance, confession, and, uh, and atonement, then they accept it as just a fact that yeah, as we fill the earth and subdue it, we're going to fill the earth and subdue it with corruption. And then it stands to reason that the next step is going to be viewing the means by which we be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it as being corrupt as well. So this black crude that comes bubbling up from the ground is actually a bad thing because it helps us to support a larger population. It helps us to spread out all over the earth and to settle and to subdue all parts of the earth. We're trying to be fruitful and multiply. That's a bad thing because we're bad things. Because in a godless worldview, apart from Jesus, we can't account for this guilty feeling that we have. And so then we start making up sins. If you were given the opportunity to account for that guilty feeling and then you rejected it, then all of a sudden you're going to go looking elsewhere to explain why you feel so guilty. Oh, look, oil and gas. Oh, look, human productivity. Oh, look, we're just having too many babies. Oh, look, we're we're destroying the rainforest. Right? And so it's it's a very confused way of looking at oil and gas development if everything that precedes it and that is foundational and fundamental is mistaken. If your starting position is that human development is a bad thing because human beings are bad things and corrupt, then you're going to come to the wrong conclusion about these things and you're going to be confused about them. So... Let's take this back to the 2020 election. We have on the one hand, Joe Biden saying, he was against fracking, now he's for fracking. At first he was saying, there's gonna be no more fracking. Now he's saying, oh no, we're not gonna ban fracking. The man is a liar, if you haven't caught that yet. You have Kamala Harris saying, I am absolutely in favor of banning fracking. She's totally on board for that. And now she's saying, oh no, read my lips, no fracking. Bans are going to come out of a Biden Harris administration. No way. That's just not true. Well, it is true. And you're a liar. I'm sorry. We have it on tape. You you are you really don't have much respect for our intelligence if you think that we're gonna buy this lie. You really are counting on low information voters giving you a pass on that. Ah, well, it's no big deal. Maybe they just changed their minds. Maybe they changed their minds or they're lying. If they changed their minds, why don't they say, well, we changed our minds. We thought that was going to work and it just won't. Here's the reasons why. That was before coronavirus, da 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 whatever. If they changed their minds and they would say they changed their minds, they didn't change their minds, they're lying. They're lying that they're going to allow fracking to continue. If you vote for them or if they get in, if they get the reins of power, they're going to shut it down. And part of the reason they're going to shut it down, I believe, is because they have this fundamentally different worldview, which says that human development is corrupt and that we've got to have the survival of the fittest ideas take over this energy production process in no small part because the people that are salty the earth that are you know, involved in oil and gas development and extraction and uh, you know in, in, in utilization, very often are conservative people. They're very often folks that are not going to vote Democrat. Well, no wonder you have a problem with oil and gas development because it's funding your opposition. You know somebody like me works in oil and gas. I've got seven kids. I am a conservative Christian with a podcast with a blog with social media that I try and leverage as much as possible with my circle of friends and family to promote ideas which are antithetical to the left. Not because I just am contrary and I just, you know, whatever the left is for, I'm against it. But because I have a fundamentally different starting position, I believe that their ideas are not just wrong, but they're dangerous, extremely dangerous. They're hazardous to our health, physical health, Social health, spiritual health, emotional health, mental health. These are bad ideas that have very real consequences. And so then let's say I am a guy with a wife, seven kids, a job in oil and gas. I make good wages. I make better than average wages. Considering the fact that I don't have a bachelor's degree, I have an associate's degree and I was most of the way to a bachelor's degree But uh, for where I'm at, making six figures most every year for the past eight years since I got into oil and gas, I have more disposable income than most people do. Now I have less disposable income than most people do because I've got seven children. So, you know, before you start getting all carried away, like, oh man, he makes all this money. He makes a hundred thousand dollars a year. Wow. That's really, man, that should be mine. Well, wait a second. You know, first of all, What is your fair share of what someone else has earned, in the words of Thomas Sowell? Zip, zolt, nada. You don't get a fair share of what I went out and earned. Okay, that's the first point. But the second point is, this is a household of nine. So if, let's say I make $90,000 a year, that's $10,000 per person when you really boil it down. Let's say Soy Boy over there, who's a software engineer, he's got uh, maybe a wife and their little fur baby, and they've got a dog. And he, they've got a nice little apartment above the bistro that they love to sip coffee at. And he makes $75,000 a year. And his wife, who's a barista there, that she makes $25,000 a year. So altogether, they make $100,000 a year. You know, if you count the dog even, that's about thirty-three dollars per person in their household. Little Fifi gets $33,000 thousand dollars to buy little sweaters and uh and whatever whatever you spend thirty three thousand dollars on a dog for so keep that in mind but i think the left does keep that in mind i think that they recognize that oil and gas is not just a conduit for supporting more people on this planet and that bothers them because actually fundamentally they hate people (laughs) Um, they love themselves they hate people because um, like every sinful person throughout history They see that there's only so many resources, there's only so much real estate, there's only so much attention to go around, and you're either going to be giving it to them, or you're taking it. You're either helping them to enjoy this uh, short, meaningless existence that uh, will be over soon enough, uh, or you're detracting from their happiness, in which case you are evil. That is how they define evil. Whatever increases my happiness is good, whatever decreases my happiness is evil. I come along with my seven children, and I say, "Well, hey, my seven children will get to vote someday, and your little fur baby never will. <laughs> your, your little fur baby's not going to uh, continue on the human species. And so, my seven children—you know—if you believe in Charles Darwin so much, uh, obviously my ideas are going to uh, be perpetuated. They're going to fill the earth and subdue it, and uh, your fur baby is just not." And that bothers them, and so they're not just upset because they see America as the villain, and our energy independence will mean that we're asserting our will across the world, around the world, but it also bothers them that the men and women who work in oil and gas have more money than they do. It bothers them to think that we might be successful with a with another idea it's a threat to all of their thinking all of their claims all of their arguments and ultimately when you really really come down to it it's a threat to their egos because they have embraced this bad ideology because it feeds their ego because it it flatters their pride if you want to use more biblical imagery i'll use a freudian uh phrase when I say that it it, it uh, you know feeds their ego, but I'll use biblical imagery and say that it flatters their pride. It's the same thing either way. Half a dozen of one and six of the other. So, in the idea that we would be successful is also an idea that maybe they won't be. And I don't just mean in terms of financial success year over year income potential because very often uh, leftist persons are well off they're financially well off i mean there's a, there's an underclass within the democratic party that loves the welfare and they they're bribed into voting democrat year after year because they're they're getting handouts for it right their welfare check their food stamps their their public assistance is all on the line and and to be clear i have been on that My wife and I had to be on WIC and PIP and food stamps and unemployment a number of times back when Barack Obama was still president because the economy took a dive and we had double-digit unemployment in Southern Ohio and nobody was hiring anywhere near proportion of the people who were looking for work. And there was just no other way. There was there was no other way except for public assistance and getting help from my father. Nobody else really helped financially, materially, uh, which is kind of a shock because there's a lot of people that uh, I know who had the means and uh, they they were not generous for whatever reason. I don't know if they thought that, um, you know, kind of like the, the signs when you go into Yellowstone National Park don't feed the animals. (laughs) I don't know if they thought of it like that, you know, we're going to create a state of dependence uh, for Garrett and Lauren if we help them. But, um, you know, long story short, what was best for us proved to not be assistance from other people. It proved to be independence. You know, short term as a stopgap, you know, fall arrest harness, if I'm working at heights is a good way to prevent breaking my neck, right? Uh, I go up in a man basket from time to time with the work that I do, and I might go up 30, 40 feet into the air to work on instruments that are installed in these tanks and vessels at heights. And we don't have to get up and access these very often, and so it's fine most of the time that they're up where you can't reach them. You can't climb up there, you can't get there with a the ladder, so you got to get there with a the man lift. And when I go up in a man lift at 30, 40 feet and the wind is blowing a little bit, I have to put on a fall arrest harness and a lanyard and I have to tie off to the basket so that if I slip, if somehow I fall out of this basket, I don't fall all the way down to the ground. I hit the end of that six foot lanyard and it stops my fall. And I'm going to probably have something dislocated. It's probably not going to be fun times but i won't necessarily break my neck so that's a positive it is not a long-term solution to be hanging out on that fall arrest just perpetually actually there's a very short span of time that someone can be suspended in fall arrest gear uh, without serious risk to life and limb and the reason for that is all of a sudden you've got this fall arrest gear that is putting all of the weight of your body on uh, these straps that are wrapped around your, your inner thighs, your upper thighs. And so they're cutting off circulation of blood to your legs, right? Whatever blood is in your legs is now all stuck there. It's not making it back up to the heart and the lungs and circulating the way that it should. It's not getting oxygenated. And if you're up there and you're hanging there for too, too long, uh, and then all of a sudden you do get down and all of that blood starts circulating again you might have clots and those clots might go to your brain and that clot in your brain might kill you right you might have some serious health problems if you don't get out of that fall arrest cure in a quick fashion similarly the welfare system is very fine as a stopgap to keep people from breaking their necks but it is not a long-term solution and the democrats who treat it as a long-term solution and they're content with multi-generational welfare families do not care about those people. Let me repeat that. They do not care about those people. They are using those people. And they're using those people to flatter themselves. At the end of the day, it is to feed their ego. It is to flatter their pride. And so what do they care if fracking throws millions of people? I think I saw a headline the other day. It said as many as 6 million Americans could potentially lose their jobs if the oil and gas industry was shut down like that in the United States. They don't care if millions of people that are directly employed by oil and gas lose their jobs. They don't care if millions and millions and millions of more people all of a sudden lose their jobs because guess what? That that gas station that 50 people stopped in at every day on their way to the oil rig on their way to the gas plant, on their way to check wells. They stopped in there and they bought burritos and they fueled up. All of a sudden, that gas station has to let some people go because they're not making as much money. All of a sudden, they've got to cut their prices and sell even at a loss in order to just stay afloat, in order to just keep the doors open temporarily. All of a sudden, your local uh, (laughs) grocery store is not selling groceries like they used to because this person can't afford to buy that many groceries for their family on unemployment checks. I just had a, a hit up from a recruiter on LinkedIn, and I just answered them today to say, you know, hey, thanks. I, I appreciate the contact, but I'm not interested at this time. But it was a recruiter looking for a technician with troubleshooting, installation, and uh, preventive maintenance uh, experience and background to work for a company that manufactures uh, food service equipment. It's a European company supposedly valued at over a billion dollars, and they need a technician who can go around to companies that manufacture uh, food, uh, including pet food, which is kind of interesting. And uh, in the, the little write-up that this recruiter sent me on LinkedIn, he said, it's, you know, very competitive wages, $25 to $32 an hour. And that alone, you know, however much interest or curiosity I might have about it, that alone tells me that's not an option. I can't work for 25 to $32 an hour. Uh, not if I'm gonna support a wife and seven children and myself. Uh, that's not a competitive wage with what I make. I'm not gonna tell you what I make, but that's that's not a competitive wage with what I make right now as a technician and what I can anticipate making if I keep at it in this industry. Similarly, a number of years ago, I was hit up by Tesla. They offered me a job. They even offered me more money when I turned down the first offer to come work at their Sparks Nevada Gigafactory 1 facility. And everything about it was exciting and interesting and tempting, but they offered me in the mid-20s per hour. And it was going to be shift work, which I'm not as excited about. I much prefer the freedom of being able to drive to work uh, on my own time. As long as I put in the hours, the work gets done. I can go in at different times and I can get home at different times. If I need to be home early that night because I'm helping teach youth group, which is the case, then I can go in earlier and get the stuff done and then cut out and get home in time to get ready and help out. And if it's my kid's birthday, I can go in early and get home early because we're having people over to have some birthday cake. Shift work where I got to be there at 7 a.m. and I got to leave at 7 p.m and that's just what it is. It's very inflexible, and I don't like it. If I don't have to do that, I don't want to do that because this is better. This is a better work-life balance. It allows me a lot of freedom to be creative and to, to get stuff done that's good for my family and to be here, right? to be part of life. But I ended up turning down this job with Tesla, not once but twice, even when they came back and offered me some more money because it just wasn't going to work. It was very attractive. It would have been an exciting uh, operation. It would have been, you know, hey, I'm part of this this big push, right? That everybody knows about. Everybody's talking about Tesla. Whatever you think about Elon Musk, everybody's talking about him. Some people think he's a complete fraud. Some people think he's, the, you know, greatest thing since sliced bread. He's a super genius. Um, I'm more inclined to the latter view. But anyway, the, the wages weren't competitive. And so then what? Right, I'm not going to be able to afford the same amount of groceries for my family. I'm not going to be able to to support the educational uh, option in the same way that I do right now. I'm not going to be able to buy uh, hard you know hardware for the computer, uh, you know technological aids. I'm not going to be able to buy books and curriculum or support you know outings and things like that the way that I do right now for our kids, where we're trying to give them a good education at home as a homeschooling family. The Democrats don't really care about that. That's my problem. And if I were to complain to them about those things, they would just say, well, that's just proof that you need to send your kids off to public school. That's just proof that you, know, you don't know how to manage your life. That's just proof that you need to have us in charge. What? What? The reason why everything supposedly proves your case is because you just want to be right. You don't really care about what's good for me and my family. You want to be necessary. You want to be essential. This is about your pride. This is about your reputation. This is about your sense of empowerment over others, that they need you. You love this dependence because it means that you have power over the people that are dependent on you. You feel superior to these people, right? Now, fracking, practically speaking, if it is uh, banned, if drilling new oil and gas wells is banned, I can tell you what's going to happen in the next four years. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to go bankrupt. I will. It's just a fact. I will go bankrupt. I will quite probably, quite possibly lose my house. Um, It will wreck my family's uh, financial situation. And at a pivotal age when my oldest son is 13 and in four years he's going to be 17, he's going to be right on the verge of adulthood. If if we ban fracking, if we ban oil and gas, you are destroying my livelihood. You are destroying my ability to provide for my family. You are destroying my family's income stream. And if that happens, I will go bankrupt. And that's not the end of the world, right? It would be very bad for us life would go on and um, yeah, I'm not uh, I'm not happy about that idea. I'm not happy about that prospect. If fracking is not banned, if the oil and gas industry is not sabotaged, if it's not attacked and maligned and subverted and thwarted and sabotaged, then I believe in the next four years, I should be able to do very well. Right now, our industry is depressed because OPEC Plus wanted to bankrupt oil and gas in America. Now this video that I watched from the Wall Street Journal talking about Pennsylvania as a battleground state, and it's really gonna possibly come down to fracking. Joe Biden's position, Kamala Harris's position, and then what a Trump-Pence 2.0 administration would do, by contrast, and they they didn't have quite the full picture, and um, you know I don't fault them for that. I don't think they're being dishonest or unscrupulous, but they chalk it up to you know we just produced too much oil and gas. Well, no, actually that's not that is not the case, right? America became energy independent. America stopped depending on the Saudis. Uh, America was exporting natural gas to countries that Russia was the main supplier for thereby reducing Russia's power over those countries. And so Russia and Saudi Arabia and our enemies and competitors around the world that are oil-producing countries said, how about this, let's flood the market. And they decided to flood the market right as COVID was shutting everything down, and it actually sent prices negative for a while. So a bunch of producers, a lot of producers, Shut their wells in because you, I mean, why am I going to produce when it's negative? Like literally, I have to pay somebody to take this oil because there's no storage for it because there's so much. There's so little demand because everybody is being told to stay home. They're not allowed to drive to work. They're not allowed to drive their kids to school. They're not allowed to drive anywhere on vacation. Planes aren't flying because you're telling people that they're all going to die. So of course demand goes into the basement. And at the same time, we've got to cut back on supply. Well, at the same time that we're supposed to cut back on supply, the Saudis and and all these bastards in, in OPEC Plus decide, let's flood the market because this is our chance. This is our opportunity to destroy our competitor in America. They want to destroy their competitor in America so that America and all these other countries are dependent on them. And as soon as we're all dependent on them and our industry, our ability to produce our own fuel for our economy, is gone. Then guess what they're going to do, ladies and gentlemen? They're going to cut back on their supply. They're going to cut back on their production. Then they're going to say, "Well, hey, looks, you know, supply and demand. You know, now now prices are going up because there's just not enough supply. Well, I guess you're going to have to pay us buku bucks and do what we say, or else we'll cut off your supply." They did this during the Jimmy Carter administration. And there were actually lines at gas stations where people couldn't fuel up because there wasn't enough gas. They had to ration the gasoline. So it isn't just my job, by the way. Do you like driving to work? Do you like being able to get your kids to school? Do you like being able to get to the grocery store? Do you like the truck that delivers the groceries to the grocery store for you to find them there? Do you like that truck being able to get there Do you like the farmer being able to drive his combine and his tractor, being able to plant the crops, being able to harvest the crops, being able to get the crops to market, being able to get... I mean, if you allow oil and gas in America to be subverted, to be destroyed, to be sabotaged, then the cost of everything goes up. And all of that might seem really confusing in terms of where we started... As far as a godless view and a a view of the world and ourselves in which God has given this creation mandate, it's like, well, Garrett, what are we talking about? Right? You might be confused, but it really isn't confusing. It really is not a change of subject, because if we're going to fulfill this creation mandate, you know, I'm trying, right? I'm I'm trying to fulfill this creation mandate. My wife and I have been fruitful and multiplied. We have seven children. Right? We're at least multiplying by, what is that, 3.5? 3.5. We multiplied by 3.5. How cool is that? We're trying to fill the earth and subdue it. I think it'd be fantastic if someday, when uh, the United States of America collapses because crazy Democrats tried to destroy it and we fought them, and there is no longer a United States of America, it's all just these separate territories and states, and then, and then North Korea hits us with an EMP, I think it'd be cool if there was... Uh, you know, a Molotania, right? I'm going to take over the Rockies and and call it Molotania instead of Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, North Dakota, South Dakota, et cetera. Um, You know, if I have enough kids, I mean, hey, you know, why not? Um, But uh, joking aside, as I'm trying to fulfill this creation mandate, I need to have a place to live, which means I need to be able to pay for a place to live, which means I need to be able to get money from someplace. Uh, If you destroy my job, you destroy my ability to earn an income. If you destroy oil and gas production, then all of a sudden grocery costs go up. All of a sudden fuel costs go up. All of a sudden the cost of everything on which groceries and fuel depend goes up. Your electricity goes up. All of a sudden unemployment rate goes up. So many things. So many things that people don't realize are connected to oil and gas, in part because the left doesn't want you to know. They want you to think, and to do this word association game, when you hear oil and gas, you think pollution. You think dirty, gross, low-tech, low-class people, who are just picking their noses and grunting all day and covered in oil and Trump, you know. Uh, They want you to have this caricature idea of who the people are that work in oil and gas. Guess what? The people that work in oil and gas are like me, right? People like me are the folks that you're going to be putting out of work if you vote for Joe Biden. People like my children are the folks that are going to be suffering as a result. People like your children, too, whether you realize it or not. Even if you're not in oil and gas, you need it. We need it. Our economy runs off of it. Now, if solar and wind and hydro and all of this renewable energy, if it works out at some point that it's cost effective, the market is going to go that way anyways. If you can produce electricity for cheaper, if you can fuel your vehicle you know, charge your your batteries on your Tesla for cheaper using generated uh, electricity from wind and hydro and solar, then nobody will be against that. Nobody will not want that. We will all want that. If Tesla had offered me $60 an hour to move to Sparks, Nevada, guess where I'd be right now? I'd be in Sparks, Nevada, because they offered me $23 an hour, $24 an hour, and I was making $30 an hour, I had to stay where I was at because it was more profitable. I couldn't afford to take care of my family on $25 an hour. Now, it's not the difference between $0 an hour and $30 an hour, right? But $6 an hour times 40 hours a week, plus overtime, 10 hours, 15 hours, 20 hours a week, That adds up in a jiffy. And it isn't just my wife and me and our little fur baby living above the coffee shop. So I can't afford to have the government pushing for oil and gas to be abolished so that their buddies that own a stake in a solar company, in a hydro company, who are poised to make a killing, can swoop in and... uh, and take off with government subsidies, which are paid for by you, by the way, right? The taxpayer subsidies, government subsidies are taxpayer subsidies. So anyway, that is what it is. Uh, I firmly believe that uh, oil and gas was put here on God's green earth by God to help us fulfill the creation mandate. And as such, I thank God for it. You know, you don't need to, Worship me because I'm helping to get this stuff out of the ground to where we can use it, but uh, worship God and thank Him, right? I I say thank God for oil and gas because it allows me to provide for my family and uh, and to help a lot of other people as well along the way. So anyway, with that, that concludes this episode of Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I thank you for listening. If you made it this far, if you have any comments, suggestions, complaints. Uh, requests if there's a topic you'd like me to hit in a future episode, uh, send me an email, garretmullet at gmail.com, G A R R E T T M U L L E T at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook, Instagram. I have a Pinterest, I have a Twitter, I have a Tumblr, I have a YouTube, I have a LinkedIn. Uh, check out on the rocks as well if you've never seen my writing. Uh, we've got a blog as of uh, September of 2015. And uh, we keep it fairly fresh. We don't write every day. We don't even write every week. But we we end up publishing a few articles a month on most months. And so check that out. And uh, thank you for listening. And God bless.